I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn over to 1 John chapter 2 for the three verses that we're going to be looking at together this morning in the time that we have left. Three verses are uh, verse 12, 13, and 14 of 1 John chapter 2. We've been talking about 1 John as a letter written by, probably by one of Jesus' followers to some of his friends in a church that he likely founded. And it's a letter that he wrote to them to try to help them stay faithful because they had been hearing other versions of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him from teachers who'd come in after John and begun spreading, spreading these untrue statements. They were beginning to, to be tempted into these other ways of, of following Jesus. And John is worried about them. So he's written them this letter. And one of the things that he's written it to do is to try to help them see what's true and separate it from what's false. So he's given them, one of the ways we've talked about this letter is it's a letter full of tests of the genuineness of Christianity. How do I know if I've got the real thing? Well, here's some ways you could know. Here's some things you could look for. He wants them to know where they stand with God, to know that they have eternal life. And he's given them some marks that they can look for in themselves and in others to see that. And because it's a letter with some tests, uh, it could be a letter that's making you anxious. Well, let's just call that what it is. Some people get really nervous about tests. In fact, did you know that there's an American Test Anxiety Association? The AMTAA? And that the AMTAA says that up to 20% of students suffer from high test anxiety, which includes symptoms like sweating, nausea, stomach pain, rapid heartbeat, short breath, headaches, and many more. And those are just the physical sensations that test anxiety can cause emotional pain as well, fear and hopelessness and a sense of inadequacy. It's a real thing. And maybe your insecurity has been tweaked. If you've been with us from the early weeks of, these series, of this series, maybe your insecurity has been tweaked a little bit by some of the tests that John has already laid out or even by the fact that he thinks it's important to test the genuineness of Christianity. All these if-thens that John sets up, all these either-ors can stir in you concern about where you stand. I think John was sensitive to that in his original hearers. He knew that that could be the effect it would have on them. And that's not what he wanted for them. He wasn't writing to make them less secure. He was writing to make them more secure. I think that's why he gives us the three verses that we're going to look at this morning. There's different kind of tests in this world. A lot of you people are studying to be doctors or are doctors already. You take a lot of them. I want you to think about this test, though, as more like one of your board certification tests and less like the MCAT. So what I'm told about the MCAT is that it's a screening test. The public at large wants many of you to fail it because we don't want you treating us because you're not qualified. And so it's, a, it's, it's meant to, to screen you out, to expose something in you, some deficit that you may be carrying around with you and not realizing when you decide to enroll in, in, in the test on, in the first place. The MCAT is meant to screen out a lot of people and the test, so that the pass rate is not great. I don't know what it is. I probably should have looked at that before I built this example, but people fail it, okay, sometimes. Your boards, though, I mean... They would want to expose someone who shouldn't be a doctor, I guess. But at that point, you've got enough invested. Like, they're meant to confirm what you should already know about yourself and have shown in your practice through your training in the hospital by this point that you know what you need to know. These tests are meant to reinforce your confidence, maybe, even. And most people pass them. John's 
letter is meant much more like a board certification test than like an MCAT. He's not trying to screen you out. He's not trying to weed out the people that he's writing to. He's trying to confirm them in their confidence about where they stand before God. But they might forget that. They might not know. They might lose some of that in some of the either ors and the darkness and the lights and the, the kinds of comparisons that he's drawn so far even. And so he's dropped in to the middle of this letter full of binaries, either ors and tests. He's dropped in a few verses where he reminds them what he already thinks is true about them. He reminds them what makes him confident about them. And in his reminder to them about why he's confident about them, if we follow his line of thought, we see the kinds of things that should make us confident about where we, should, where we stand before God. That helps us to use this letter not as a scare tactic in our lives, but as a reinforcement and an encouragement to us to recognize what God has done by his power and his grace in us. What I want to do is walk through these three verses briefly and pull out of them what I see as three marks for Christian confidence, three reasons, three things that Christians should be confident about that help them see where they stand before God and that should encourage you this morning if you're a follower of Jesus and you're feeling any bit of the, of the sort of fear or insecurity that I've talked about, that this morning, the, these verses, they're for you. They're here to encourage you. Now, before I can get to what's in these verses, I think I need to say a few words about this passage in general. And I want to begin by reading it. Once we've read it, you'll see why I need to set this up a little bit more. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And then we'll unpack these verses together this morning. This is God's word. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is God's word. You can be seated. I need to say a couple things real fast about how this text break down, breaks down before I can pull for us these three marks of Christian confidence that I want you to see and be encouraged by this morning. It's an unusual text. Even if this was the first time you'd ever heard it, maybe you could see why. It's, it's broken down in a, an almost lyrical passage, almost poetic, the way that John builds it. And it's not always clear to us why he's included the things that he's included here. For example, who are these children? Who are these young men? Who are these fathers? And the short answer is, I, I don't know. And neither does anybody else. <laughs> there are lots of different theories out there. So I did a lot of background reading on this this week to try to uh, get myself into a place where I could understand what it was before I start talking about it to you guys. And w- there are several different theories about who these categories might be. Maybe it's symbolic for different stages of Christian growth. You know, like brand new baby Christians and then sort of growing but still immature Christians and then really mature Christians. But there are some good reasons that I don't think that's what it is. And the categories overlap some, the things that are said about them. And the things that are said about them are things you would, that should be true of all Christians, not just mature ones or, or baby Christians. Some see it as three different age groups of people in their community. Some see it as children, as sort of a broad category that covers everybody because he calls them children a lot in this letter. When he's writing to them, he'll say little children, little children, little children over and over. That's how he refers to them. And then the other ones cover the age range. 
So you've got children, that's everybody, and then you've got the young men and you've got the fathers, and he's just using masculine terms that refer to the whole community. Maybe that's what it is. The short answer is that nobody really knows, and I don't think we need to, to know what John is meaning. I think we can see it as a passage that would have made sense quickly and easily to the people he was writing to. They would have known what he was talking about. It made sense to him, but that sometimes some of the details, especially in lyrical passages like this, get lost over time. We, and, and, and being in, in a different time, in a different place, we just have a hard time knowing what, what those were about. But God's word is sufficient still to teach us. Even when there's things about it that, that we don't immediately understand, there's plenty in here that we can understand. And where we want to draw our minds, where we want to, where we want to focus our eyes, is on what he says about each of these groups. So what you'll see is there's a good bit of overlap in it, and that the kinds of things he says really just don't belong to any one group of Christians. They're for everybody. He's writing to, des- to describe what he sees in, believes about, and celebrates in this church and all of his friends that are there. He's writing to show what he's confident about in them. And the categories overlap some into what I'm going to break down into three different things, three different reasons for confidence. If you look at these verses and, and, and you follow in my translation the lines that begin because. So I write to you children because, fathers because, young men because. He repeats it. Each, each one of these groups is addressed twice. If you look at the because statements, you see the points, the things he wants to notice, the thing he's, he wants them confident about. And we're going to look at those statements this morning. One person said that you've got the whole point of the letter summarized in these three statements. They capture, or these, these six, that when you layer them on top of each other, amount to three different things that John is pointing out. In these three different things, you've got the whole point of the letter summarized. It's a beautiful capture of what essential Christianity is and meant to highlight it for you in your own life so that you can rest and what Jesus has already done. That's what I want to do here is just describe three things to look for for confidence in where you stand before God. And here's the first one. The first thing that Jesus or that John highlights is what Jesus has already done. He highlights that Christians are forgiven. He's confident. He writes to them because he knows their sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. Do you notice that in verse 12? That's where he starts. It's the first place we need to look if we want confidence about where we stand. It has nothing to do with his friends and has everything to do with Jesus. And if we want confidence in where we stand before God, the first thing you need to know is that it can't have anything to do with you and must have everything to do with Jesus. You start there. It's the bedrock and foundation of any true Christian hope. He doesn't point them to their work. He doesn't point them to goodness and their character. He doesn't point them to all the ways that they've served others. He doesn't highlight dramatic changes in their lifestyle from before they committed to Jesus and after they committed to Jesus. He's not saying, you know, you got forgiven and now you've shown that you have, have, have built on it. You've built, a, you've built on that foundation Jesus set. So, so if you want to know where you stand, just look at this, this house that you've built on the basis of your forgiveness. He does not doing that. He's pointing them straight to forgiveness, to what Jesus has done for them, not to what they might do for themselves. If you want confidence, you have to look not at what you deserve, but what Jesus has done. Not to what you feel about yourself, but to what God has said about you. What he has promised to do for you if you trust in him. John knows that his friends might be tempted to think that Christianity is like other religions, that that it teaches a way of getting right with God that depends on a full life where good outweighs bad. 
I was talking, I remember a conversation with an Iraqi friend a few years back. We were having dinner together uh, and we were talking about the different ways we were confident about where we stood with God. Where do you hope? In life and in death. And he was, Crystal Clear was a great conversation partner because he was so clear about his own thinking and his own confidence. He, he described his life as a kind of balancing act where it was up to him to make sure he had accrued enough good things to outweigh the bad things that he had done in his life, that he would face a judgment day at the end of his life. And only on that day would he know if he had done enough. But he was approaching his life, chipping away at the bad things that he had done and amassing better and better things, hoping that by the end he had done enough. And John knew that all of us, I think, are wired to think that way about our lives and to hope that we can do enough good to outweigh the bad. But John wants to reshuffle how they think about goodness and, 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 and our lives and where they stand before God altogether. There's something fundamental that has shifted here with Jesus. That is not how he treats us. That is not what he demands of us. If, we, if all we had were ourselves to rely on, then yeah, our sins, even one of them, would be enough to bring God's judgment down on us. That's what we deserve. And no amount of goodness can overcome even one of the things that we've done against God. He is infinitely holy. A sin against him is infinitely valuable. It cannot be overcome by anything we do, no matter how much. But through Jesus, God has offered not just a fresh start, not just a clean slate that then he asks us to build on, not just a boost in our lives of holiness and following him, but he has offered a once and for all cleansing that will never be stained again. And if you want to know where you stand, you've got to look at him, not at yourself. The key phrase here is for his name's sake. Your sins are forgiven, not because you've done anything to earn it, not because you've done enough good to make the bad stuff more forgivable, but because Jesus has done everything that's necessary for you to be made new. It's his name that's on the line in your forgiveness. To be forgiven for his name's sake means to be forgiven for who he is and what he's done. It means to be forgiven for his glory so that he gets credit for the goodness that shows up in your life. It means to be forgiven because God has attached his own reputation to your forgiveness. He has promised to forgive you no matter who you are and no matter what you've done. And he said, if I don't, that's on me. That's a stain on his word that he's offered and promised to you. So he forgives because of Jesus and the power of his promise of forgiveness with no asterisk, with no excluded categories, and with no prerequisite that you've got to fulfill other than repentance other than acknowledging that you are not okay on your own and that apart from him, you have no hope. Friends, to know that you're forgiven, you need to not look not at yourself as if for some sort of evidence that you deserve it and look not at your feelings as if you should know in your own heart whether the forgiveness has taken, but look to Jesus and to what he's done and to the sufficiency of his work and not yours. Don't focus on what you feel primarily, Don't focus on whether you seem forgivable. Don't focus on whether you've been forgiven by others as a foreshadowing of whether God could forgive you. Focus on God's promise to forgive you. I love the way that one one writer put this. If we focus on our experience, he said, rather than on Christ, the foundation of our confidence about where we stand, it starts with us. 
rather than looking out at Jesus. In other words, he says, if we focus on what we see about ourselves rather than what we hear from God, then instead of drawing us out of ourselves in faith, our experience is just going to drive us deeper into ourselves in alternating moods of self-trust, kind of pride, or despair. And neither one of those roads is one you want to go down. You want to know where you stand with God? Look at Jesus. Your sins forgiven for his name's sake because he's earned it and he's put his reputation on the line in it. If you're fearful this morning, that's the most important thing you need to know and the most important thing you need to do and that's why John starts here. Look to Jesus. But forgiveness is not an end in itself. Forgiveness is a means to another end. Forgiveness is meant to lead to a restored relationship with the one who made you to love him and know him and trust him. A relationship that you were meant to crave. A relationship that is your only hope for flourishing in this life and in the life to come. Forgiveness is not an end in itself. It's not just about the therapeutic value you'll get from it, though that's real and powerful. Forgiveness is a means to the end of you having a healthy, healed, and whole relationship with God. Did you notice this repeated phrase about knowing God? I'm writing to you, fathers, he said, because you know who, him who is from the beginning, verse 13. says the same thing again in verse 14. And then he writes to the children, too, that they know the Father. He's confident about where they stand because he's confident they know God. That's the end game for forgiveness, knowing him. He's sure that, he's sure that that's true of him. So what he's pointing us to, I think, is that if, if, if we want to be confident about where we stand, then we need to look at our knowledge of God. What does that mean? How could I get confidence from knowing him? How does the relationship with God, I was forgiven in order to enjoy, show up in my life? I want to I give you just a couple things to look for here. Christian confidence comes from the fact that Christians know God. That's the big point. Well, what does that mean? I think to understand it, you need to know what it means to know him italicize the word no and then you need to know what it means to know him italicize the word him both of these are packed into what John has said here both of these aspects of it what it means to know him John and all the other writers of the Bible are really clear about it means to know him from experience a kind of relational knowledge, not just head knowledge or cognitive knowledge, not just knowing things about him, but knowing him with what one writer, one of my favorite writers, has called a spiritual sense, a sense that's just like your sense of sight or taste or smell. It, it's a sense that gets awakened by God's power so that you can experience for yourself firsthand what's said about God, where he becomes a living and breathing person in your life, one whom you have a history with, one whose track record you've seen show up, one, one that you know you can trust because you've been there with him. When John says that they know him, he's talking not about what they know about him, not about the right answers to questions that they might be asked in their training, but to what they have seen from their own life's experience. And friends, that comes, that kind of sense knowledge of him 
direct and experiential, only comes as his gift. Paul prays for it. When he writes at the beginning of Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesians, the first chapter, he prays that his friends will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Hearts don't have eyes. What is he, he's obviously talking about a metaphor there. That, that something about them in their essence, in the core of who they are, he wants to see and to trust. And for those eyes to get open, for you to actually see and experience God in your life, he has to make you able to do that. Has he? Have you experienced him as more than just something you've heard about, something you've learned about, but someone that you've known? If you haven't, then there's a place to begin for your prayers today. Pray that God will open the eyes of your heart, that if he's there, he will show you. And not just through new facts about him, but through new experience of him. That's what, that's what forgiveness is meant to make possible in your life. And that's, that's one of the most important and powerful ways to be confident about where you stand with God. Confidence never starts there. It starts with Jesus and who he is and what he's done. But it is fed by a living and breathing daily life with him. That's what it means to know him. But our confidence also comes when we know him. Specifically, when we know him as father. That's where John points us here. He's confident about them because they know the father. You get confidence when what you see, what you know about him, what your relationship history with him tells you. What you understand because of what you've experienced from God is that he loves you as a precious child. That knowledge of him as your father affects your life, it affects who you are, and it gives you good reason for confidence. This kind of connection to him, knowing him for the God that he's revealed himself to be through Jesus, a father who is always for you, always loving, always providing, protecting. Knowing him as father, knowing yourself to be his child, that places you in the world. That undergirds everything else about the roles that you play and the things that you go after in your life, in your career, in your families, in your hobbies, your ambitions, your skills, even your personality. All of these things are, are part of you. They make up the, 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 the ins and outs of your days and how you experience them. They're part of you and they matter. But those things can't tell you who you are. They might be able to tell you what you're like, but not who you are, not what you experience, not what energizes you, not whether you're introverted or extroverted or what letters come after your Myers-Briggs exam. These things may be true indicators, things that are true about you, okay? But as a Christian, they are not who you are. That kind of self-knowledge comes only from knowing him as father, which makes you a daughter or a son and underlies and filters and supports and guides everything else that's true about you. A friend recently pointed me to a really helpful example of this. I don't know if you guys like those born Identity movies. I like them the older they are. I like them better. The first one has this amazing scene where Born is sitting across from that girl, I forget her name, his, his partner in crime, Maria maybe? I don't remember. He's talking to her in, the, um, in, in the rest, this restaurant. They've stopped on the road for food, I guess, and gas and what have you, and they're on the run. And he still has no idea where he's come from and what he's doing. 
And he tells her, he sits across from the table and he's, he's explained to her just his, his angst about who he is. He says, you know, I know all six license plates, the cars that are out there in the parking lot. I know that, that waitress is left-handed. I know that guy's 250 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know that the glove box of that gray truck out in the parking lot is the best place to find a gun. I know that I can run at this altitude for a half a mile flat out and not get tired. How do I know all these things and not know who I am? Friends, I think a lot of times we can spend time digging deep on the different things that we know are true about us. Looking closely at the things that we're good at or the experiences that make up how we view the world or personalities that we bring to the table. A lot of things you may know about yourself. But until you know yourself as the child of a father who rules over all and loves you, then you may have a lot of skills, a lot of experiences, a lot of traits, a lot of quirks, but you won't know who you are or what to do with what God has put into your life. Christian confidence comes from knowing him as father. Do you? The final mark that John points us to comes out in verse 13 and 14. One last thing that he's confident about in his friends that he would want you to be confident about in yourself as a follower of Jesus this morning if you're following him. And that is that Christians overcome by the word. He describes him two times as those who have overcome the evil one. Once in verse 13, once in verse 14. I write to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. And then verse 14, he unpacks it a little bit more, but with the same punchline. I write to you because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Now, I'm guessing you don't think often of the evil one, even if you've been a Christian a long time, but he is a regular character in the story of the Bible and he is deadly serious. The Bible takes him seriously as a threat to everybody. The Bible describes him as someone who's got everybody that lives on his radar and wants to take them down. So who is this evil one? What's he trying to do? And what does it mean to have overcome him? We need to know that before we'll understand how this could be a reason for confidence for you this morning. The Bible talks a lot about spiritual powers that we can't see, but that are active in the world. Those powers are always opposing what is precious to God, always chipping away at it, undermining it, always trying to destroy humans made in his image. And among those spiritual powers, the Bible talks about one of them that's supreme, refers to him by different names, sometimes Satan, sometimes Beelzebub, sometimes the devil, sometimes like here, just the evil one. One writer has helpfully broken down, I think, what we see this figure doing in the Bible into two categories. When this figure shows up in the Bible, he's doing two things. And we need to see this morning how you can overcome what he's trying to do by the word. Two things we see this figure doing. And how to overcome those attacks by what, what, what Jesus has done for us. Here's the first one. The evil one is always accusing So how do we overcome the evil one's accusations? The word Satan actually means accuser. Did you know that? It actually means accuser. It's one of his main jobs, one of his main roles that he's taken on to himself. 
He is the voice inside of you that tells you that you're not worth anything. Revelation chapter 12 describes the evil one as the accuser of the brethren. Imagine him as a prosecuting attorney. It's his job that he's taken onto himself to point out guilt, to bring guilt to the surface, to keep it in front of you so you can't forgive it. And even more than that, he's the one who's there to undermine what God's word in the gospel tells you is true for you. He's the one who whispers into your ear, no, you're not a forgiven child. You're just a rebel who deserves to die. You've betrayed those you love, he'll tell you. You've betrayed those who depend on you. You've broken every rule that you expect others to follow. You're a hypocrite. You're a mess. You're ugly. You're damaged goods. You're not fit for the light, so stay down. Keep hidden. Keep hiding. Don't let anybody see the truth. You're guilty. You deserve to die. That's his work. He accuses you and accuses you and accuses you. That's what he says. And you know what, friends? He's got some good material to work with. When he tells us what's true about us, he, when he tells us his version of who we are, he's got nice, vivid, detailed, historical examples to use. So there is no overcoming the evil one's accusations that depends on us countering him with good things about ourselves. No, I'm really worthy. I promise. I am. I'm not guilty. That won't work. You can't outrun his accusations because you can't undo what you've already done. And you can't stop from doing wrong again. You will. Remember what John has said in John chapter 1, 1 John 1. He who says he's without sin, he's just deceiving himself. The truth is not in that person who says that they don't have sin. So, how do you overcome the accusations of the evil one? You can't. Except through Christ your advocate. Do you remember that category? John's used it, hammered it, wants you thinking about it. When you stand up under the accusations of that prosecuting attorney, it isn't you that stands there. It's your advocate who stands for you and tells the truth. He won't try to deny the accusations that the evil one will hurl your way. He doesn't have to. Because he has stood tall under every single one of them already. He has borne the weight of them on his own body, hung to the cross. And in his resurrection, he has the proof that he's done everything that's necessary to take away, drain away every drop, every ounce of power that those accusations might have had. The evil one says, he's guilty. Crucify her. She deserves to die. And Jesus says, no, she's not. Look at me. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at the death that I died. That death was died for her. That sinner is ransomed. That sinner doesn't deserve to die. Not anymore. You overcome only by the word of God, in other words. A promise from him of what he has done for you. Only by the word of God, John says in verse 14, that abides in you can you overcome the evil one when his accusations are hurled. But in Christ, be confident. Your advocate lives to plead for you. And the second thing that the evil one does that will only overcome by the word of God 
is the evil one tempts us. And when he tempts us, it isn't always just about the allure of the object that he's tempting us to and how good it is. That's part of it. He also tempts us not to believe, to disbelieve that God's boundary is good for us. He'll look at God's word about one thing and not about doing one thing and not another. God's saying, trust me, I want what's good for you. This is good for you. That is not good for you. He'll take that word and he'll chip away at it. He'll say, you cannot trust God. God just wants to hold you back. You know better about where happiness lies than he does. He'll tell you that God doesn't have your interests at heart, isn't worthy of your trust. When you're tempted to sin, friends, that is always what's happening, always. He is making you believe that what God has said isn't best, that this thing over here would be better. He's always deceiving, always lying. And maybe you believe this morning that there is no overcoming the temptations that you face. I realize there, there are some among you who, who have built up a long track record at this point of not resisting temptation. And you can't even imagine what it would look like to resist it at this point. And that's one of his greatest weapons to use against you, to just keep you down, to keep you in the dark. Now, I don't want to minimize what that feels like or suggest that you don't need to get creative and practical and strategizing against what you've been giving into. I just want to make sure you leave today knowing that you're wrong if you believe you can't stop. You're wrong. Christians overcome the evil one and his temptations and not on their own, but through Jesus. They overcome, John says, by the word that abides in them. And what word is that? It's a word about God's love. It's a word that says, look at Jesus. Look at what he gave to you. Would a God who would give up his own son for you really do something, ask something, demand something that's not good for you? The word of the gospel is a protection from the lie that God's ways aren't good. That same word tells you of God's power. It says to you, Jesus didn't come only to die. He didn't come to just set you up for success and then set you off to fly on your own. He's not just rooting for you, telling you, I did it, you can do it too. He didn't even just leave you with a kind of prototype of a YouTube how-to video where he's given you a vivid life full of examples of how to go and do. If that's all Jesus left you, you should be worried about whether you can overcome the temptations the evil one brings into your life. But Jesus has done far more. Hebrews tells us that he himself was tempted so he could feel everything we feel and know exactly how to come to our aid. And that means that there is no temptation so strong you can't face it and overcome it because you don't face it on your own. You have an advocate who stands with you, a great high priest who lives to pray for you, one who is given in his life to making sure you have everything you need to survive. I love the way one of my favorite writers is a Puritan writer named Richard Sibbs captured this. I, I try not to quote this more than four times a year, though I could quote it more than that. I'm going to do it right now. I don't remember how many. I don't know where I am in my quota, but the, this year is new. So I want you to listen to what Richard Sibbs wrote to friends that were struggling with assurance and confidence in their, in their walks with Christ, wondering whether they could win 
the battle that the evil one had brought to their shores. Sibs writes, victory lieth not upon us, but upon Christ who hath taken it upon him as to conquer for us, so to conquer in us. The victory lieth neither in our own strength to get nor in our enemies to defeat it. If it lay upon us, we might justly fear. But Christ will maintain his own government in us and take our part against our corruptions. In other words, here's what Sib says, they are his enemies as well as ours. So let us not look so much who are our enemies as who is our judge and captain, nor what they threaten, but what he promiseth. We have more for us than against us. And what coward wouldn't fight when he's sure of victory? None are here overcome, but he that will not fight. Sibs is saying what John is. By the word of his promise, Christians have overcome the evil one. And he has nothing to throw at them that they cannot rise above, not because of themselves, but because of Jesus. Friends, look to your advocate and be confident this morning. He has all you need. Father, would you give us eyes of the heart open to see this truth and to love it? In Jesus' name, amen.